The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. Little Harmony Montgomery's life was filled with hardship and tragedy. Both of her parents suffered from addiction problems. These issues were addressed by a judge who gave sole custody to her father, Adam Montgomery, a career criminal. Harmony was just five years old when she was last seen alive in 2019. Now her own father is on trial for her murder. I'm Vinnie Politan, and on this week's Court TV podcast, you'll hear both sides lay out their cases to the jury in their opening statements. The state's theory on how Harmony was killed and the lengths that Adam Montgomery allegedly went through to hide his daughter's body. And you'll also hear the defense's assertion that Adam did not kill his daughter. Have a listen. This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. As I said to you yesterday, we hoped and planned that we would begin with opening statements this morning, and that's exactly where we are. Uh, So when the state is ready. Thank you. Where is Harmony Montgomery? Where is Harmony? When people across this nation, from Florida all the way up to Alaska, and everywhere in between, we're looking for Harmony. There's one person who is not. One person. The one person who should have been looking for Harmony was not. Her biological father, that defendant that you saw two days ago, he wasn't looking for her. And in fact, he was hoping that she wouldn't be found. His concern was not with finding this innocent five-year-old girl. His concern was that she would be found and that his heinous and depraved actions would be brought to light. That's because he was the only person in this world who knows where Harmony is, who knows where her body is, and he was hoping that she would never be found. The one person, the one and only person who murdered Harmony, who butchered her body, and who disposed of her like yesterday's trash. This case is about Harmony Montgomery. I don't want that to get lost as we progress throughout this lengthy trial. This case is about Harmony Montgomery, but it's also about the defendant, his actions, his rage, his brutality, and his escalation in violence. The murder of Harmony Montgomery That was just the beginning of the depraved actions of this defendant and what this case is all about. It's about a man who for two years evaded apprehension, didn't have to answer for his crimes, had no appreciation or concern about Harmony being missing because he already knew she was dead. For two years before the Manchester Police Department initiated their search for Harmony Montgomery. That man got away with murder. His only concern, other than Harmony's body being found, was to keep his wife, Kayla Montgomery, from coming in here and telling you all what he did to her. 
his heinous actions, his cover-up, what she witnessed. For two years, he got away with butchering a five-year-old girl. And that defendant made sure that Harmony would never be found, that she'd be gone without a trace. You'll see, he believed that if there was no body, there could be no evidence of the horrible things that he did to her, and he would get away with it. And so he went to great lengths to cover up his crimes, to cover up beating Harmony to death for a bathroom accident. He went to great lengths to cover up his conduct. Beating Harmony to death because she soiled herself. And he thought that if he destroyed the evidence, what remained of Harmony, if he destroyed Harmony, he could never be charged. He was careless in this meticulous cover-up. He made mistakes. We're gonna hear about those mistakes because it's evidence of his crimes. It's evidence of what he did. So let's talk about the evidence in this case. On, November, on December 7th, 2019, the defendant beat Harmony to death because she had a bathroom accident something she had no control over. She'd peed her pants, and he murdered her in a series of attacks, of brutal strikes that began that morning in the car that she was living out of and ended in the Burger King parking lot that you all saw yesterday on The View. He carried her body with him for months. For months he carried her body, and he discarded her with zero appreciation for the life that he'd taken, just a fear of being caught. And in the months that followed, he beat, he injured, he terrorized the only witness to his crime, the only person that could come in here and tell you what he did. She was his loose end, Kayla Montgomery, his wife. He conditioned Kayla through force and through threats with the purpose of making sure that she would never come in here and tell you what she'd seen, what he did. Beating Harmony to death for another accident, destroying her body, freezing her, thawing her, squeezing the liquid out of her, compressing her body into a bag like this one. compressing her body into a bag like this one and filling it with lime to further decompose her. Unspeakable things. And this is what he did to the only witness he left alive. She was beaten, she was conditioned, and she was living in fear. She was in a nightmare with no end while he dragged around Harmony's body for months. And I wanna pause here for just a moment. I wanna thank all of you for being here. This is gonna be a lengthy trial. You're gonna hear many difficult things. That's not lost on us. It's not lost on the attorneys that are in this case. 
So thank you for taking the time out of your lives to come here and listen to the evidence, to judge the evidence. It's necessary. It's a necessary function. And if you listen to the evidence, if you keep an open mind, and if you follow Judge Messer's instructions, you'll understand the timeline of Harmony's death, of the cover-up. You'll understand the horrible things that that defendant did, why he assaulted, why he murdered, why he terrorized. And after he was done with all of this, why he destroyed evidence, why he lied, why he blocked his friends and family, why he manipulated his wife into doing terrible things to hide his crime, to hide the victim that he'd murdered. So let's talk about the victim that he murdered, the, the victim that he made sure couldn't come into this courtroom and tell you the horrible things that he did to her. Her name is Harmony Montgomery. And there are four descriptions that you're gonna hear of Harmony during the course of this trial, some of them horrible. Harmony was born to the defendant, Adam Montgomery, and her mother, Crystal Sori. She was born on June 7th of 2014. She was a daughter, she was a sister, she was a Minnie Mouse fan, she was a fun-loving girl that loved being a big sister. She was just five years old when the defendant brutally murdered her. During the course of her, her brief life, she was a, a fun-loving girl. She was someone that defied all odds. She spent most of her life with Tim and Michelle Rafferty, her foster parents, who she called Daddy and Mommy Michelle and those odds that she defied. When, when Michelle Rafferty, when Tim and Michelle got Harmony, when they got custody of her, she was just two months old. And Michelle was told she's not gonna live past seven months, told that she had learning disabilities. And still you'll hear that Harmony was an intelligent girl. She was a curious child. She was a child that ran with other children, played with them. She was potty trained at a very early age. At a very early age, she was potty trained and that'll become important as we progress throughout this trial. So keep that in mind. Harmony was potty trained at a very early age. She wasn't someone that was bound by limitations. And you'll hear that when she lived with her mommy, Michelle, and her mommy, Crystal, she was thriving. She was thriving in school. She was thriving with her peers. She was a child like any other. She was full of life. But that's just one description of Harmony, and I told you there are more. The defendant got custody of Harmony in February of 2019. At that time, she was only four years old. And the second description is darker. It comes from the 10 days before the defendant murdered her, and we'll talk about that more as we go along. The 10 days before he murdered her, in the second description, not, not the one where Harmony's thriving, in this one, she's scared, she's skinny, she's constantly exhausted, and she's bruised. 
At this point in Harmony's brief life, she's not able to control her bladder. She's not able to control her bowel movements. She's soiling herself. And during this period, the time when the defendant had her, those 10 days, she went from, from living in their home on Guilford Street at 77 Guilford Street to being homeless and living in, in a car, in the family's car. And when they were living in that car, those bathroom accidents got worse and worse and they came more and more often. And you'll hear the, about the defendant's rage, this rage of the defendants that was building and building with each and every accident. And each time Harmony had an accident in that 10 day period, the defendant would strike her. That rage only growing, adding to that fear. And the next two descriptions come from the actions that the defendant took, the defendant took after he had murdered Harmony, after he beat her to death. You'll hear that she went from this little girl full of life a girl that radiated happiness, that radiated joy, to a scared girl, broken, bruised. And from there, she went to the dead girl in the duffel bag. And after that, she went to the, she went to the dead girl rotting in the ceiling, the ceiling that the defendant slept under for months. For months, as Harmony's body fluid, her blood, Leaped, leaked through that duffel bag and was absorbed into that ceiling, he slept under her. That's what he did to her. That's what he made Harmony. His actions. Remember that as we go along. This case is about his actions. And those are the descriptions of Harmony. That's what the defendant made her before he disposed of her. Harmony was just five years old when the defendant beat her to death, but her story continues long after her death with the gruesome actions that the defendant took, the things that he did to her, the places that he took her. Three people witnessed Harmony's death, her murder, and they survived. Her two younger brothers, one just five months old, the other two years old, and her stepmother, Kayla Montgomery. Back then, Kayla was the defendant's wife, she was mother of his two small children, his two boys. They met when they were kids and they married in 2017. And eventually they moved to Manchester, New Hampshire and they lived at the home on 77 Guilford Street. The defendant stayed home with the children and Kayla worked. She was a cashier at Dunkin' Donuts. And during the six months leading up to Harmony's murder, their marriage was on the rocks but Kayla tried to make it work. She wanted to make it work for her family. She wanted to make it work so that she didn't lose another person that she loved. But this case, it's not about Kayla. It's not about what Kayla did. It's not about what Kayla didn't do. Remember that as we go along. It's about what the defendant did. Kayla was the defendant's loose end. She was the witness to his crimes. She was the witness to his confession to an assault that took place against Harmony by the defendant in July of 2019. She was witness to Harmony's murder. She was witness to the defendant compressing Harmony into bag, smaller bag, 
smaller bag, compressing her more and more over the months that he had her, adding lime to that bag. And he was witness to, and she was witness to the defendant disposing of Harmony. She was the witness that was left alive. So let's talk about that first event, the assault on Harmony from July of 2019. That summer, the summer of 2019, was Harmony's first time living with the defendant. It was her first summer with the defendant. And again, they lived at this home on Guilford Street. You'll hear that they lived there with Helen Montgomery, the defendant's grandmother, and the defendant's uncle, Kevin. And Helen and Kevin left that summer. They went down to Florida. And there, Helen had a triple bypass surgery, and Kevin stayed with her. He accompanied her. He accompanied her to help her in her recovery. And you'll hear that Kevin was gone for three weeks. And when Kevin left, when he left the home, when he left that home, Harmony was uninjured. No bruises. Uninjured. But when he came back, Harmony had a large black eye. A black eye such that was so swollen that the profile of her face had changed. It was horrible. This girl was bruised. She was injured. And her face was swollen. And when Kevin walked through that door, he saw Harmony. And this immediately stood out to him. This was his niece, his great niece. And the defendant was standing next to Harmony, and he said, Harmony, what did you do? What happened to you? And Harmony didn't even have time to answer. The defendant interrupted and said, she didn't do nothing. I bashed her around this house. I beat the out of her. That's what he told his uncle about Harmony, what happened to her, how she got that injury. I beat her. I did that. The defendant, the defendant in this case, You'll hear that this shocked Kevin. It frightened him. And that was the last night he stayed in the house. He never went back there. He spent that night in his house and he got out of there. And in the time that followed, he did everything he could to get Harmony help. He contacted authorities. He contacted DCYF, contacted child services. You'll hear that he was unsuccessful This assault from July of 2019, that's separate and apart from the murder charges, a different incident. And so I wanna talk about the murder now. And to do that, again, we have to talk about the 10 day period before the defendant brutally murdered Harmony. Those 10 days where Harmony had major life changes. You'll hear that the, the family went from, they went from living they went from living in that home on Guilford Street to being evicted and living in their silver Chrysler Sebring. And while they were living in the Sebring, Harmony's, they were parked. While they were living in the Sebring, they parked in that parking lot we saw yesterday at Colonial Village, the apartments. They stayed there in their car. And Harmony, at this point, had another major life change. She started having accidents. She started peeing herself. She was incontinent. She couldn't control when she had to go to the bathroom. 
she was peeing herself, and she was pooping herself. This girl that, that prided herself on, on being able to control her body, basic functions. She was a big girl, but she started having these, these issues with her bladder, with her, her bowel movements. And you'll hear that when they moved into that vehicle, when they started living there, those accidents got worse and they came more often. She wasn't letting the defendant know when she had to go and she was creating a mess each time. And that rage, the defendant's rage that you'll hear about in this case, grew and grew. And he would hit her, he would strike her each time she had one of those accidents. And that was Harmony's life for 10 days. For 10 days, she lived in a car. For 10 days, she had bathroom accidents. For 10 days, she was unable to control her own body. For 10 days, she was in fear. She was scared because each time she had one of these accidents, the defendant would hit her. The defendant that you saw two days ago, a large man, he would hit this. She was 35 pounds in June of 2019. This again is in December. She was tiny and he would hit her. He would strike her with a fist over something she had no control over. And those accidents were getting worse and they were coming more often. And she was so bruised before her murder that the defendant had to hide her when he went out in public. He would literally take a blanket and cover her up so that she couldn't be seen and that so no one would know what he had done to her. No one would see those bruises. And that brings us to December 7th of 2019. That day began like any other day for Harmony. They were living in that car. She woke up and she was scared. She was scared because she'd, she'd wet herself. She didn't want the defendant to know. She'd wet herself first thing that morning and she was afraid. And just as she feared what happened, the defendant smelled what she had done. And for that, he hit her. He struck her in the face and he drove his car. He continued on with his day as if he had done nothing. He struck this little girl in her face on the side of her head and he continued on as if nothing happened. He drove to the methadone clinic, the clinic that you saw yesterday on The View and there, he and Kayla took turns getting their treatment. You'll hear that Kayla went in first, the defendant stayed in the car, and then the defendant went in. And when the defendant came back to the car, he was hungry. And so he started driving the, the family's car to the Burger King, the Burger King that you saw yesterday on The View. And as he was pulling out of that parking lot, he smelled something. He smelled that Harmony had had another accident. And that rage, that rage that had build, been building inside of him, it was there. Remember, he was still upset about the earlier accident, that first thing in the morning. And he looked back at Harmony as he was driving and he said, really Harmony, again? And he began striking her as he was driving, holding onto the wheel. He began punching this little girl repeatedly 
repeatedly for something she had no control over. He struck her blow after blow after blow to the side of her small head. And he didn't stop. And you'll hear me say that. He didn't stop. He didn't stop with that first barrage of assaults, of strikes to her small head. He continued. And when he pulled up to a light, he continued hitting her, hit after hit to her small head, blow after blow. Now, during this barrage of strikes, Kayla, who was in the passenger seat, seated next to the defendant, seated in front of Harmony, she put a hand up. She tried to block what this defendant was doing to Harmony. She tried to stop him. You'll hear that in that moment, he looked at her as if to say, you're next. And she was scared. And she looked forward and she put her hand down and those strikes to Harmony continued. And when he pulled up to another light as he was driving to that Burger King parking lot, he continued striking her. And after that last strike, he looked at Kayla and he said, I think I really hurt her this time, this time. I think I really hurt her this time. I think I did something. And he didn't stop. He continued with his drive. He pulled into that parking lot at Burger King and he ordered his food. He ordered his food and he ate. He didn't stop to check on Harmony. He didn't look back at her. He didn't show any concern for this innocent little girl, the child he'd just beaten. He ordered his food and he ate and he didn't stop. You'll hear that at that time, after that last blow, after that last strike to her small head, she began moaning, making a gurgling sound. Sounds that continued on and off for several minutes. And he didn't show any concern. He ate his food and he continued driving towards the colonial apartment parking lot. And while he was there, he did drugs for 20 to 25 minutes showing no concern for the child that was dying in his back seat, just feet away from him. And Kayla, you'll hear, was too scared to look back. She couldn't look back, she was frozen. She was terrified to see what he had done to this small child. She could just hear that moaning, those gargling sounds, sounds that eventually stopped. After the defendant ordered his food and he was driving back, he did his drugs, listening to those noises, not showing any concern. He pulled into the Colonial Village parking lot and he did drugs for 20 to 25 minutes. He ate his food and he did his drugs and Harmony slowly died. And when he was done with that, still showing no concern for Harmony, he pulled out of the parking lot where they'd been living. And when he made it to the intersection of Webster and Elm, which you saw in the view yesterday, his car died. 
It died just as Harmony had died several minutes before. The defendant realized they were gonna have to abandon that vehicle. And so he started removing items, getting the kids out, shaking Harmony, telling her to wake up. She wasn't responding. She couldn't, she was dead. He had done that. And when he realized that Harmony was no longer alive, that he'd murdered her, he grabbed a duffel bag. Remember, they were living in that car. All of their items, all of their possessions were in that car. He grabbed the duffel bag and he stuffed Harmony's body inside. And remember those descriptions that I told you about, about Harmony, what you'd hear throughout this trial. That's when Harmony became the dead girl in the duffel bag. He did that to her. That's what he made her. The defendant stuffed her into that bag and he went on about his day as if nothing happened. But Harmony's murder, that was only the beginning. And remember what I told you, this case, it's about the actions of the defendant. They didn't stop after he murdered Harmony. That was the beginning of his conduct. His actions didn't end when he brutally murdered Harmony. You'll hear about how he carried her for months, scheming, plotting, coming up with a plan of how to get rid of Harmony somewhere she would never be found. And they went back to the Colonial Village parking lot that afternoon. They had a friend there, a friend who, who let them stay in his, his Audi. And you'll hear that that friend brought, brought them dinner for two nights, the two nights they stayed there, December 7th and 8th. He brought them dinner and notably, he didn't see Harmony with them. He didn't see Harmony because she was in that duffel bag, the duffel bag that he was moving between the trunk of that Audi SUV and the ground outside. At night, he would keep her in the ground between his car, the Audi SUV, and the dumpsters that you saw yesterday that you walked around in that parking lot. He kept her on the ground because it was cold outside. Remember, this was in December, and he wanted to keep her body cold. <laughs> From the Colonial Village parking lot, they went to Kayla's mother's home, and they stayed there for the rest of the month. She picked them up in her, her van, and that's where Harmony stayed for several days while the defendant looked for somewhere more suitable to keep her. And he found something more suitable. In the entryway of Christina Lubin, Kayla's mother's home, he found this open cooler. And he stored her there for much of the remainder of his stay. And they left that home on December 30th, and they went to the Families in Transition shelter. It was at the Families in Transition shelter that the defendant began to discuss disposing of Harmony, getting rid of her. He believed, you'll hear, he believed that if there was no body to find, there would be no evidence of what he'd done, and he would get away with this heinous crime. And so he began to discuss disposing of her. While he was there, he moved Harmony from the closet of that room 
he moved her to the ceiling. He removed that vent cover and he stuffed her body inside. And that's when Harmony became the dead girl rotting in the ceiling, the ceiling that he slept under for months. Now the defendant faced another problem at the fit shelter. Harmony's body began to rot. It began to smell. He was storing her body in the ceiling above his room and the heat was on. And the heat was causing her body to decompose more and more by the day, to rot more and more by the day. And it was smelling. And other tenants, other people that lived there were complaining about those smells. So he had to take her body out of that ceiling. And he brought it to the bathroom and he compressed it. He, he compressed and contorted her body into this bag, into a bag like this. And he put it back up there, back in the ceiling. And when he was taking her body down, when it was still in the duffel bag before he'd added trash bags and put her inside a bag like this one, she was leaking. She was leaking. Her liquids were pouring through that duffel bag. And investigators followed up with the fit shelter. They went to that room. They looked in the ceiling. And when they took that vent cover off, they immediately smelled decompos deco decomposition, a smell associated with dead bodies, rotting bodies. They smelt decomp. Still present two years after the defendant had removed Harmony's body from the ceiling. And they saw deep stains, deep stains in the drywall where Harmony's blood had been absorbed. That blood was tested. It was sent to a lab in Florida and tested. And that lab in Florida confirmed that that blood was Harmony. Something the defendant missed. Remember, he was careless in his meticulous cover-up. He made mistakes. That's gonna be one of them. That blood in the ceiling, Harmony's blood in the ceiling, all that remained of Harmony. The defendant made sure of that. And surrounding that blood, surrounding this blood, surrounding what was left of Harmony, the defendant's fingerprints, his palm prints, rose in there for time. So at the shelter, the defendant had a problem. He was living in a shelter. He didn't have access to a freezer and Harmony's body was beginning to rot and stink and it was getting worse and worse by the day. People were complaining. This wasn't good for him. And it was around this time he started working at the Portland Pie Company, which used to be here in town, since closed. He worked there for just over a month. He was a dishwasher and a cook. And that CMC bag, the one that looked like this, that accompanied him to work. It stood out to people because he placed it in the freezer during his shifts. He brought it with him regularly to work and he stored it in a freezer where the company kept food, ingredients, 
People saw him bringing that in and out regularly. They couldn't have imagined what that bag contained, but they saw it. And after they left the fit shelter, after the defendant left the shelter, he moved into an apartment on Union Street. And it was in the Union Street apartment that he began to discuss, he began to discuss dismembering Harmony, squishing her, further contorting her body. He discussed using a saw to cut her up. He discussed using lime to further decompose her so that there would be nothing to find. Remember, he believed that if there was no body, there could be no evidence, and he would get away with this horrible thing that he'd done, beating this little girl to death. And it was in the bathroom of his Union Street apartment that he compressed Harmony. Already in that CMC bag, filling that CMC bag, he compressed her further, and he added lime to the bag, thinking that it would eat away at anything left of her. He spent most of the day in that bathroom, compressing Harmony. He took her out of the CMC bag, and he placed her in the tub. She was frozen at that point, so he turned the hot water on and ran it over her so that he can manipulate her body, further compress her. Kayla walked into the bathroom as he was doing this. She saw what he was doing. She saw Harmony. Harmony, at that point, was skin and bones. And she saw the defendant squeezing Harmony, squishing Harmony, trying to remove the liquids that remained from her small body and down the drain of the tub. When Kayla walked into that bathroom, he told her to help him. You'll hear that, that Kayla obeyed. She held Harmony's arm while the defendant used a scissors to cut off Harmony's clothes. But this was too much for Kayla. She couldn't take what she was seeing what the defendant was doing, the sick and grotesque things that he was doing to this child's body. And so she went to the living room to be with her two sons to make sure that they didn't walk in and see what he was doing. So in that bathroom, the defendant shut the door be behind her. And that once bulging CMC bag, the bag that Harmony's body filled, he compressed. He compressed it enough to add much of a 40-pound bag of lime. And he took breaks from the horror show in that bathroom. And during one of the breaks, breaks from working on Harmony's body, he said, I can put her in pieces. I can put her in pieces. I can cut her up. And while he was working in that bathroom, working on Harmony, he clogged the drain. Remember that as we go along. He clogged the drain. While he was squeezing her, getting the liquids out, he clogged the drain to the bathroom. And investigators learned that the defendant went to Home Depot on February 26th, just six days after they moved into that apartment. He went to Home Depot where he bought a saw, a backup saw blade, diamond cutting saw blade, a backup battery, and lime. 
That was on February 26th, just six days after he moved into that, that apartment. On February 27th, he placed a work order to unclog his drain. Now, it was around this time that the defendant began to suspect that Kayla was working with the police, trying to give them evidence to put him away for what he'd done to Harmony. He was suspicious of her and he was pulling out outlets. He was pulling out light bulbs, light sockets, thinking that there were listening devices planted to get him for what he'd done to Harmony. And it was around this time that he started beating Kayla. He started threatening her, threatening her that if she reported him, he would kill her. And that if he went to jail for what he did, he'd have someone else kill her. The abuse was constant and it came regularly and Kayla documented the abuse as shown here. Less than a week after the horror show in that Union Street apartment bathroom, the defendant disposed of what remained of Harmony, what was left of her. He was meticulous in making sure that nothing came back on him. He enlisted help from friends. He asked a friend to get him a U-Haul van. A U-Haul van back then was cheaper than a rental car. You'll hear that this friend, he helped, he got him the van. The defendant at the time rented a hotel room so that he could leave the hotel room and dispose of Harmony. And when that friend, when he came to bring the defendant the keys to the van with his girlfriend, his girlfriend saw a CMC bag, a CMC bag that was protruding from the hotel room's mini fridge. And that stood out to her. And when the friend gave the defendant the keys to that U-Haul van, the defendant said, I up, I up, and he repeated it over and over, I up, I, me, the defendant, I up. But he couldn't say how, he couldn't say what he'd done. That was on March 3rd of 2020. The defendant left in the middle of the night, headed south. And when the defendant left, he told Kayla, that he wasn't gonna tell her where he was gonna dump Harmony, where he was gonna dispose of her. He didn't want her to have that information that he could later, that she could later use against him. He was in control. He had all the pieces. He wasn't gonna have someone know where evidence of the girl that he had brutally beaten was. He made sure that he was the only person that knew what he'd done with her. Remember, he believed that if there was no body, he could never be charged. He could never be charged with this heinous crime. And when he left the hotel room that night, he headed south to Mass, and he made another mistake. That U-Haul van that he rented, he blew through tolls on the Tobin Bridge, and a camera captured that van. You'll hear about the, the many searches for Harmony Montgomery involving multiple states, Maine, Mass, New Hampshire, involving multiple agencies, both state and federal. Thousands of man hours looking for this little girl. And you'll hear the defendant's words. You'll hear him on a recorded call during one of those searches telling his friend that investigators were wasting their time, wasting their time looking for this little girl that he brutally murdered. They were wasting their time. 
the defendant's words, you'll hear that. After disposing of Harmony, the defendant realized he made he had one loose end, his wife, Kayla. And so he conditioned her. The abuse got worse over those months and months. He beat her. She was a loose end to him and nothing more. Now, you'll hear that Kayla lied. She stuck to a story that the defendant gave her. She was scared at what would happen to her at the hands of the man she witnessed beat this small child to death and drag her body around for months. She's gone to prison for those lies. She's gone to prison for those lies. And since then, she's helped investigators. She's helped investigators find proof, proof that Harmony's dead. That blood in the ceiling with the defendant's fingerprints. She spoke to investigators and police for hours upon hours over multiple days. Statements that gave investigators evidence that they wouldn't have without her. Gave a mother some sense of closure, knowing that her daughter's dead, still out there somewhere, but not suffering, not anymore. Now Kayla's testimony is important. She saw what happened, she felt it, she lived it, she's still living it. But the reason you only have one witness to the defendant's crime is because he killed the other, the witness that he couldn't control, the witness that he couldn't manipulate. But even though Kayla's testimony is important, this case doesn't rest solely on her shoulders. You're gonna hear about the forensic evidence, the physical evidence that corroborates what she says about the surveillance footage. You'll hear and see evidence that corroborates Kayla in ways that she never could have imagined. You'll hear and see evidence that shows you who killed Harmony, who had motive to destroy her after he killed her. And you'll hear some of the defendant's lies for yourself. You'll hear about the absurd story he told to evade apprehension, that he gave Harmony back to her, her mother in mass the day before Thanksgiving in 2019. That was his excuse. That was his lie. But in those two years where he didn't have to answer for this crime, where he thought he was free and clear of what he'd done, he told someone that he trusted what he really thought of Harmony. He told her that she was evil, that she did evil things. He told her that Harmony was a constant reminder of her mother, Crystal Sori, who he hated. And he told her that he hated Harmony to his core. That's what he said in secret about the innocent child that he'd beaten to death. The helpless girl that he beat because she soiled herself. He hated Harmony to his core, and the evidence is gonna show that he did everything to destroy Harmony after he beat her, to hide his crime, to hide evidence of what he'd done. And for what the defendant did, He's, charged, he's been charged with multiple crimes, crimes that the clerk read to you yesterday in open court. And the evidence will prove that he's guilty of each and every one of them. He's guilty of the second degree assault for beating Harmony in that July 2019 incident, for bashing her around the house, for beating her off every wall in the house, for kicking the out of her, for causing the black eye, causing that injury to Harmony. 
just like he's guilty of reckless second-degree murder for beating Harmony to death in the Chrysler Sebring on December 7th, 2019. He's guilty of falsifying physical evidence for mutilating Harmony's corpse, for destroying her, for putting her somewhere she would never be found. And he's guilty of tampering with a witness for beating Kayla, for threatening her, for compelling her to stick to the story that he gave her. And he's guilty of abuse of a corpse for his conduct in the Union Street apartment bathroom, for compressing Harmony into that small bag, adding lime to it. Those are the crimes the defendant in this case committed. That's what he's guilty of. The defendant committed multiple violent crimes against a small child, a helpless child. In December 2019, he assaulted and he murdered because of that rage, his rage. He destroyed Harmony so that he could never be caught. And he beat Kayla for control. That's what the defendant did to his victim in this case. And at the conclusion of this trial, that's what we'll ask you to find him guilty of. just left with that picture of Harmony and seeing that picture is heartbreaking knowing that Harmony is dead but Adam Montgomery did not kill Harmony Adam Montgomery did not beat Harmony in the head as he approached the Burger King drive-through Adam Montgomery did not cause Harmony's death Kayla Montgomery was the last person to see Harmony alive and know how Harmony died. But she didn't come clean with Adam. She didn't come clean with the police. And she will not come clean with you. She is still lying about the cause of Harmony's death. Even though Kayla now has her deal with the state, she continues to lie. The only reason Kayla has to lie now is to protect herself. The only reason she has to lie and point the finger at Adam is because the truth points the finger at her. The only reason Kayla has to lie to make Harmony's death so brutal and foul by Adam is to hide that Adam was protecting Kayla, his wife and the mother of his kids. Now look, I'm, I'm not pretending that Adam isn't innocent here. Adam is not an innocent here. He and Kayla covered up Harmony's death. He's not an innocent here. He and Kayla moved Harmony's body from place to place to keep it hidden. And Adam is not an innocent here. He and Kayla put her body in a shower to, to wash her remains of the fluids of decomposition and then permanently hid her remains. You can and should find him guilty of those crimes. But in committing those crimes and sticking with a story that protected his wife, Adam set himself up for Kayla's betrayal. Her betrayal to accuse him in the most vile way possible of what he did not do. To accuse him of brutally killing his, not her daughter, when she knew that was not 
what happened. The evidence that will show you that Adam did not brutally murder Harmony will come mostly, and very reluctantly, from his accuser, Kayla. Not from other witnesses or the physical evidence, but by showing that Kayla's lies continue. And the only one protected by those lies is her. Because only she, other than an infant and a toddler, was around when Harmony died. Only she knows the truth, and only she has benefited from all the lies she has told. November 27, 2019, a day before Thanksgiving, Adam, Kayla, Adam's daughter, Harmony, toddler's son, Seamus, infant son, Declan, were evicted from their home on Guilford Street in Manchester. They began living out of their Chrysler Sebring. In the following week, when Adam was running around trying to make money to get them out of their situation, Kayla was left cooped up in that seemingly increasingly smaller by the minute car with a five-year-old child, not her own, a two-year-old toddler, and a less than one-year infant, all of whom needed attention, all of whom needed to move around, and none of whom were doing well being cooped up in that car. And Kayla didn't do well either. Adam was off doing his own thing, and Kayla was stuck. Harmony's body was not discovered lifeless in the car at that busy intersection you saw yesterday. It was not discovered at that intersection in the middle of the day on December 7, 2019, as Kayla now claims. Both Adam and Kayla discovered Harmony's cold, lifeless body much earlier in the dark of night behind Colonial Village when Adam returned from his business. Kayla made Adam feel responsible. She claimed not to know what happened. It was Adam's fault for everything they were going through. It was not her fault, she insisted. She thought all the kids were asleep. He had to protect her. He had to protect their children. If anyone found out, their children would be taken. Adam stood by Kayla, and together they covered up Harmony's death. By that decision, Adam became so intertwined in Harmony's death that he could not get out. Neither Adam nor Kayla knew what to do, so they put the decision off. Adam placed Harmony's body in a duffel bag from the car and placed that duffel bag in the trunk. And Harmony's body was in that bag in the trunk of the car when it broke down at the intersection of Webster and Elm. They had driven off from the Colonial Village apartments to try and figure out what to do, where to put Harmony's body. But then the car broke down. When it did, Adam grabbed the bag from the trunk and carried Harmony's body away from the intersection to the parking lot at Colonial Village. From there, as you'll hear, Harmony's body 
was moved from place to place until Adam and Kayla finally figured out a plan to hide the body permanently. When asked, Adam and Kayla told people that Harmony was back with her biological mom in Massachusetts. Let's now move forward two years. December, 2021. This was two years after Harmony's death and close to a year after Kayla and Adam had separated. The police were now investigating Harmony's disappearance. They found Kayla and asked her where to find Adam and where Harmony was. Kayla gave the lie she and Adam had used to explain why Harmony was no longer living with them after Harmony died in December of 2019. That Adam had returned Harmony to her mother in Massachusetts. Kayla also told the police that she believed Adam was in Maine. After speaking with the police, she contacts Adam. And she told him, quote, you need to come down here. She told him he needed to return to New Hampshire and deal with the police because she was not going to deal with all this by herself. Adam did what Kayla told him to do and returned. But unfortunately for Kayla, he also brought another woman, Kelsey Small, with him. Adam met up with Kayla and they talked about what to do. That New Year's Eve, New Year's Eve 2021, Kayla talked to the police again. This time, it was at the Manchester police station. She again gave the lie that protected her, insisting Adam took Harmony to her mother's, and that was all that she knew. And after well over an hour of talking, as Kayla stuck with this lie, the police gave her time alone to think to write down what she wanted to say, just in case it was too difficult to, to verbally speak about. And Kayla did take that time alone to think and to write. And this is what she wrote. Quote, I don't know what happened. No clue. I just know he left to bring her to meet her mom, to give harmony to her, after he dropped me off at work in the morning. And she wrote, you need to get him to talk. He won't tell me anything. So he obviously did something and isn't saying anything to me. Kayla was ready to point the finger at Adam, but only in a way that protected herself. Five days later, January 5th, Kayla was arrested anyway, but for something different than what the police had wanted to talk with her about. Instead of being arrested in relation to Harmony's disappearance, she was arrested for something else, what eventually became a, a theft charge. But she knew the arrest was to pressure her. While in jail, Kayla had more time to think and to scheme. How was she going to get out of this mess that she was in? She knew that the police thought she had information about what happened to Harmony. 
and she knew that the walls were closing in. Kayla also knew that pointing the finger at Adam was worth something. And she... Pointing the finger would help get her out of this mess, and she thought about how to use Adam to get out of it. What I am holding up for you is defenses G for identification. This plastic bag contains a note. This note is written by Kayla and it reflects what she wanted for a bargain. A few weeks after her incarceration, this note was found in Kayla's cell. And in her musings, she writes of her willingness to, quote, betray Adam. Not to finally be free of Adam, not to finally be safe from him, not to tell the truth, to betray, meaning stab him in the back. But she also wrote of her longing to be alone with him one more time, to kiss, to make love if she could. She didn't write of fearing to be alone with him. She did not write of any fear that Adam would hurt or kill her for her betrayal. In her fairy tale musings, Adam would understand and protect her to the end. Their, their children needed their mother, she wrote. But as this note also shows, Kayla wanted more than just one last time with Adam. She had a whole wish list, a set of demands. She wanted, quote, immunity from everything. Everything being in all capital letters. She wanted immunity from everything, all charges I'm facing, and what I'm going to say about Adam. Maybe ankle bracelet or probation or drug court. Kids in my life. Not lose custody or rights to my children at all and be able to have kids live with me once I do a residential treatment program and complete it. Kayla was willing to sing for her supper, not for truth, not for harmony, but for Kayla. Kayla was all about protecting herself to wiggle out of accountability for her own conduct. After that note was discovered in Kayla's cell in January of 2022, January 29th to be exact, Kayla told a correctional officer that she wanted to speak with the attorney general's office. But no one came to her with a deal. And instead of a deal, she got a subpoena. She got subpoenaed to appear before the grand jury in March, and she remained in jail. Now, Kayla finally got out on bail on May 6th, 
but she still had been subpoenaed to testify before the grand jury, this time on May 20th. Still no deal. And when Kayla finally appeared before the grand jury, she still had no deal. It was explained to Kayla that she could choose not to answer a question if it would incriminate her. Instead, though, she chose to lie. Under oath, the same oath you'll see her take later, trying to make herself look innocent while pointing the finger at Adam. She told the grand jury that Adam had dropped her off at Dunkin' Donuts on November 30th with Harmony and the two boys in the car and said that he was returning Harmony to her mother in Massachusetts. But even as Kayla insisted that she didn't know what happened to Harmony, a bombshell drops. The attorney general's office, the AG told her as she was testifying, she was working at Dunkin' Donuts, that they had her employment records. Was she sure, they asked. Kayla knew then that she was caught. She was caught in a lie. The AG had her employment records, looked at them, and knew that she was not working. And this was not just a simple, honest mix-up of, of days. Those records showed that the AG's office had, those records showed that she had been fired from Duckin' Donuts for stealing even before the family had been evicted on the 27th of November. She knew she was caught in a lie. She knew the AG's office could prove it, but she had not developed a, a new lie and couldn't change course in midstream without a plan. So that day before the grand jury, May 20th, she kept marching forward, hoping that maybe they would believe her anyway. Nothing happened at first after her grand jury testimony was over, but Kayla knew it was coming. And roughly two weeks later, on June 3rd, when Kayla checked in as part of her bail conditions, it did. It came. She was arrested for lying before the grand jury. Kayla had a new story prepared, but with the new charges, the state had the upper hand. She was allowed to give her new story with the agreement that her statements could not later be used against her. But there was no guarantee of a deal and instead, Kayla would only get that deal that she wanted if her statements helped the police figure out what happened to Harmony. And if the state decided that Kayla's statements were not helpful, she would be facing not only the charges she was already facing, but now two more felony charges, this time for perjury, perjuring herself before the grand jury, plus any charges that could come about if the police were able to figure out what happened to Harmony without her statements. And Kayla knew that the police were going to follow up on what she now said. And without something to corroborate this new story she was going to give, 
there wouldn't be any reason for the police to accept it. After all, she had already lied to the grand jury to point the finger at Adam. So instead of the truth, she told a lie of a brutal killing where she was also a victim. But because there cannot be any corroboration for the lie itself, Kayla intermingled some of the truth of how she and Adam covered up Harmony's death. The lie itself cannot be corroborated, but there would be corroboration in the truth of the cover-up. Because Kayla's new story was not true of how Harmony died, she lacked real memories to draw from and the details did not fit. Both the details she provided and the ones she did not provide. And it is in those details, details based on a lie, that begin to reveal the lie still being told by Kayla. At first, Kayla's new story for the police when she gave a proffer on uh, June 3rd of 2022, her new story was that it was the middle of the night, 2 or 3 a.m., Harmony had been having trouble controlling her bodily functions while the family had been living out of the car, and Harmony went to the bathroom again. Adam responded by repeatedly punching Harmony, probably like 10 to 15 times. That story changed to Adam assaulting Harmony in the morning before they went to the clinic for their methadone. The story then continued by saying that, Armin, that Adam struck Harmony again after getting back in the car from the clinic. Then, as they drove to Burger King because Kayla wanted to get something to eat for her and the kids, the story expanded to Adam punching Harmony as he was driving into the Burger King parking lot. Kayla claimed to recall Adam commenting that the last strike was different. He thought he hurt Harmony. Kayla did tell the police that she uh, put an arm up briefly to try and stop Adam, but to no avail. Adam drove up to the Burger King drive-thru, they ordered their food, Adam paid cash, the family got their food, and drove back to the Colonial Village Apartments with Harmony moaning in the back. That's her story. And, and when asked, Kayla claimed that she fed the kids. She told the police that she went up to her friend Anthony Bodero's residence to get some drugs for she and Adam to use, leaving Adam alone in the car with Declas, Seamus, and Harmony. This whole entire story was not true. One of the things that you'll see that reveals her story about punching to be a lie is that she is unable to describe a true scene. She does not describe two-year-old Seamus crying as his sister beside him is being struck. She does not describe the baby screaming as violence and chaos break out around him. She does not describe trying to soothe or quiet the children. Nor does she describe 
Adam reacting at all to what would have been a cacophony of screaming and crying had all that punching been true. She does not describe trying to hide a, a broken child from the Burger King cashier or any concern on Adam's part that Harmony might be seen by the cashier or the camera. She does not describe Harmony as she feeds piece by piece food to Seamus, who is next to her in the back seat of the car. She does not describe seeking help from her friend she got drugs from. She doesn't describe any concern by her friend, Anthony Bordero, that she seems upset. And please keep close attention to Kayla's various descriptions of the car breaking down, where she claims that she and Adam first discover that Harmony is dead. Kayla told the police that with Harmony in what would have been a critical, perhaps fatal condition in the back seat, the family decided to drive away from their corner in the back of the Colonial Village apartments. Yet, Kayla did not remember where they were going. Then, the car broke down at the intersection of Webster and Elm, and they discover Harmony's dead body in the back seat. Kayla talked about waving, honking, agitated drivers behind them around the car as Adam manhandles a dead child in the back seat into a duffel bag. And no one notices. Their car did break down on December 7th at the intersection of Webster and Elm. That is not in question here. Um, and the family did walk back to Bodero's. But Harmony's body was already in the duffel bag, in the trunk, from when they discovered her death in the early hours of the night before. Yesterday, uh, before we broke, the court gave you a partial set of instructions on how you are to go about deciding this case. Among them was an instruction on assessing the credibility of witnesses. It is up to you to determine the credibility of witnesses. But the judge did suggest an illustrative list of factors to consider in making that determination. One factor is whether what the witness said appeared reasonable. In discerning this, details matter, the details that are given and the details that are not. Is the witness pulling from a well of true memory or just making it up? Another factor the court has offered for your consideration is whether what the witness said is consistent with other evidence in the case. And that leads me to some of the science that was, was used in this case. Kayla also described Adam cleaning up blood spilled by Harmony with a kerchief. That lie was exposed by a special test that can reveal blood traces, even blood that was supposedly cleaned up. Luckily for the police, they were able to locate the broken down Sebring two years later. They're able to bring it to their uh, lot at the police station, and they were able to search and test it 
with a special test that could detect invisible blood, blood that cannot be seen with the naked eye. No traces of blood, including on the back passenger seat where Kayla said Harmony bled and Adam cleaned it up. In offering guidance in assessing witness credibility, another common sense factor offered by the court is whether the witness had a bias or motive to lie. There will be time during Kayla's testimony, during direct and cross, to explore the, the changes, the inconsistencies, and details within her story, both those that are there and those that are not. And you just heard about the science to also assist you in evaluating Kayla's claims. But here, what follows is an example of Kayla's motive to lie at play, of Kayla taking something true and twisting it to point the finger at Adam, yet hide her own involvement. In telling the police how Harmony's body was finally removed from their lives, Kayla described an incredibly disturbing treatment of Harmony's body, her remains in the refrigerator before being placed in the shower under hot water, washing away the fluids. Kayla at first said it was all Adam and he wouldn't even let her in the bathroom, but she slipped up. And fortunately, the interviewers caught it. They caught the slip and they probed. Kayla had to admit that she was part of it too. She cut off Harmony's hoodie in the shower and she and Adam bagged up Harmony's clothes. And when that was done, Kayla and Adam put her remains in another bag with Kayla helping Adam to zip that bag up. You will hear that after Adam and Kayla permanently hid Harmony's remains, that their relationship became more frayed. Adam struggled with the loss of Harmony and his mental health suffering. Adam and Kayla separated briefly. That was in the spring of 2020 before reconciling. But Adam continued to spiral. And a year later was arrested after another episode. He went to rehab then stayed at a sober house before going to Maine with Kelsey Small, which was where he was in December of 2021 when Kayla told him to return to New Hampshire and help her deal with the police. Joined with the murder and related charges is a second degree assault charge. That allegation is that Adam knowingly caused bodily injury to Harmony in July of 2019 by striking her in the face with a fist. Harmony did get a black eye during the summer of 2019. And no question about it, Adam did react when he saw Harmony trying to smother her brother, jerking her away to stop her. But that is not what caused the black eye. On July 22nd of 2019, uh, Kevin Montgomery, Adam's uncle, came up from Florida to the house. He saw Harmony's black eye, prompting a conversation about her. During this conversation, Adam told Kevin about a time when he walked in to find Harmony smothering 
then five-month-old, Declan. Harmony had her hand wrapped around his mouth, causing him to turn blue. Adam pushed Harmony away while checking on Declan. Then, a week later, upon returning to Florida, I believe it was uh, July 29th, Kevin made a report to New Hampshire DCYF, and he told DCYF that Adam gave Harmony a black eye, conflating what Adam had said. A veteran caseworker, Demetrios Saros, responded that very same day, the 29th, to investigate. Though the encounter was brief, he did see Adam and Harmony outside the house getting into a car, and when he saw Harmony, he observed no concerns. He also followed up, paying another visit on August 7th. This time he did see a small red mark in Harmony's right eye and faded bruising under the eyelid. He spoke to Harmony alone, asked probing questions to find out what may or may not have happened, and then after doing his job, left the visit satisfied that there was no substantiated evidence of abuse. I am getting ready to step down, but before I do, there is just one more instruction I need to discuss. The court has instructed you that you are to decide this case not on sympathy, but on the evidence and the evidence alone. This case involves the tragic and senseless death of Harmony, an innocent five-year-old, and it triggers perfectly understandable innate human emotions and it would be it would be a human not to feel them but as was discussed during during the jury selection process and as you've been instructed by the court you all have a difficult yet necessary task deciding this case not on emotion not on sympathy but on the evidence and after you have heard all the evidence, after you've heard all the evidence in this case and apply the facts to the law, you will know that Adam did not murder his daughter or engage in witness tampering with Kayla. Kayla was an equal participant in the cover-up. She alone knows how Harmony died, and she won't tell. At this trial's conclusion, we will ask you to follow the evidence you have heard and find Adam not guilty of murdering his daughter, witness tampering with Kayla, and second degree assault. That's all for this week. This trial is happening right now and you can see it all unfold on Court TV. Here's a link in the show notes to our continuing coverage of the trial of Adam Montgomery, where you can catch up on everything you may have missed, including the testimony of Adam's estranged wife, a key witness in this case. And you can see me on Closing Arguments with Vinnie Politan every weeknight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we dive deeper into the latest and breaking true crime stories. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.